0: So I have a really good friend, his name is Jordan, he is a local pastor, he's on staff as a pastor at another church here in Raleigh, and one of my favorite stories about him uh, that he loves to share when he goes and speaks is how when he got one of the, not the first iPhones, but one of the the first iPhones, he 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 got the phone, and you know, when the iPhone first came out, the apps were like this big deal, you could download apps, give all these things, and so he said one of the first apps he downloaded was the Celebrity Lookalike app. And so what you do is you upload a picture, and it kind of matches someone you look alike. And a lot of times, for being honest, it's a lie. Like, you look nothing like these people. They just want you to feel good about yourself, right? So he downloads this app, and uh, we'll go ahead and put the picture of him and his wife. This is Jordan and Jessica. And uh, so he does his wife first, and he's like, you know, she's really pretty, and so she gets, I forget who he says, but she's, like, you know, who she get match, matches with, and it's all good. And then he does himself. And so he uploads his picture. It takes like 30 seconds because, you know, it's kind of slow. And uh, as it's uploading, he's thinking of all the people that he might look like. Jake Gyllenhaal. uh, He said maybe Scotty McCreary. Like all these people. And then lo and behold, it finally loads. And this is who he matches with. (laughs) Now, if you're in the back, and it's a vertical picture, so it might be a little hard to see. That's Anne Frank. And come find me after the service. I've got the picture on my phone. He looks like Anne Frank. And uh, so that's who he got. You know, it's also funny. He says when he goes and speaks somewhere, he always tells the host he's going to start with an Anne Frank joke, and they get really nervous. And uh, this is why. Um, So he looks like someone, he is not. And I share that today because we're continuing our series, What If? We're looking at some of the maybe foundational picture, um, not pictures, uh, references to Jesus in his birth story. And so today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3. Now, last couple of weeks, we started talking about the genealogy of Jesus a few weeks ago. Uh, Last week, we talked about the virgin birth and why that is important. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about another figure that's uh, intricately connected to Jesus and his birth story. And that's John the Baptist. Now you may be familiar with John the Baptist. You may not have a lot of information about John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, not to be confused with John, the disciple of Jesus. They're two different people. There's also a gospel of John in the New Testament written by John, the disciple of Jesus, not John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has a birth story that is also miraculous, not a virgin birth story, uh, he has a, but he has a very big birth story. that takes up a lot of Luke chapter one. And then he has a ministry that begins right before Jesus's ministry begins. So I want to kind of catch up to speed really quick on who John the Baptist is, and then we'll look at what he came to do in Luke chapter 3. So if you read in Luke chapter 1, you see a lot of stuff. Here's the condensed version. Uh, His parents were Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, and his mom was Elizabeth. They had no children, which was not a good thing in ancient culture. Uh, To make matters worse, Zechariah is a faithful priest. And so to to not have children is kind of an embarrassing thing. People might have thought that you were cursed in some way. So it was a sad thing for them. Uh, Around the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born, there was about 18,000 priests in Israel. Uh, They were divided up into 24 divisions, which makes about 750 priests per division. And so they were scattered throughout the land of Israel, but twice a year, uh, your division was scheduled to work in the temple in Jerusalem. So for two weeks out of the year, you and the 750 priests in your kind of division, your order would work at the temple, do maintaining the temple, offering sacrifices, doing various things. And then also at the very big festivals throughout the year, all of the priests would also come. So a Passover, for example, celebrating the the Israelites uh, rescue out of Egypt was The biggest week-long celebration of the year, and so they would all go there. Uh, uh, John's birth story happens around the Passover. Uh, Long story short, Zechariah is chosen to go into the holies of holies, which is the holiest place in the temple. Uh, Not every priest got this offer, uh, and if you did get the opportunity, you could only do it once in your entire life. And so, during the week of Passover, he's the one that gets to go and burn incense in front of the holy in the the of God. He goes in there, and an angel basically tells him that his prayer for a son has been answered. Zechariah is like, I don't know. I don't really believe you. How's this going to happen? Like, we're old. We don't have any kids. And so the angel's like, well, here's how you know. As soon as you leave out of here, you won't be able to speak until your child is born. So he leaves the temple. He can't talk. Everyone's like, what's going on? If you read some of the other texts, it also seems that not only could he not speak, but he probably also couldn't hear. And we, th- and we think that because when uh, G- Elizabeth does give birth to a son, he can't talk. And so they ask Elizabeth, what's his name going to be? Elizabeth says she's going to name him John. Now, there is no John in Elizabeth and Zechariah's family, so this is not something you were supposed to do. It's kind of like in our culture today, Christina and I, our last name is Dotson. If we were to have a child and we were to not give them the last name Dotson, you'd be like, what are you doing? And so they're like, John, no. And so they're trying to motion to Zechariah, what's the name supposed to be? He writes on a tablet that it's also supposed to be John. And they're all like, what you, what's going on? And as soon as he tells them the name John, he can now speak and he can now hear. So everyone's like freaking out. And it says that they worship because something clearly miraculous is happening here. Now, one last thing to know, Elizabeth, uh, the, Mary, uh, the mother of Joseph or John, excuse me, is also related to Mary. Mary mother of Jesus. She's either uh, uh, Mary's aunt or some sort of cousin, which means John and Jesus are also related. So this is the backstory of John the Baptist. Uh, Here's what this means, that John was born into a priestly family. He becomes the first prophet for Israel in 400 years. Now, he lived in the Judean desert, and his main message, again, was to repent because the kingdom of heaven, heaven is at hand, that God has come. And unlike Jesus, who, who went out to the people, John stayed in the wilderness and the people came to him. And again, his message was repent because God is here. And so here's what he does. Let's look in Luke chapter three. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you if you'd like to read along. Here's what it says, Luke chapter three, verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... While Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, which just means he was in charge of the region. His brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, of Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Can I get an amen for saying those names right? Somebody, come on. You know you don't want to read it, okay? So I got it right. Now, that's a lot of names. Here's what's happening. Basically, this is just telling us the time period where John the Baptist began his ministry. We don't know the exact date, but it's likely around 29 AD, give or take a few years. This is when John starts his ministry just a little bit before Jesus. And here's who John was. Luke then says this in verse three. He, talking about John the Baptist, uh, "'went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, "'proclaiming a baptism of repentance "'for the forgiveness of sins, "'as it is written in the words of the prophet Isaiah, "'A voice of one, crying out in the wilderness, "'Prepare the way for the Lord. "'Make his paths straight. "'Every valley will be filled. "'Every mountain and hill will be made low. "'The crooked will become straight, "'the rough ways smooth, and everyone.'" We'll see the salvation of God. So here's what's happening here. Luke is talk, it describes John the Baptist by referencing a verse in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. Again, if you're uh, come often or around here at New City Church, anytime you see an Old Testament a passage or verse quoted, it's never just that verse. It's supposed to bring in mind the entire context. And so Isaiah chapter 40, and really Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, um, is all about how God will comfort his people. Now, if you were here last week, you would know that soon uh, Judea or Judah, Israel, southern Israel, is going to be overrun and taken over by the kingdom of Assyria, and they're going to be in exile literally until the day of Jesus, and they are still in exile. So even though things are not going the way that they would want, it's all about how God will still comfort his people. He will not leave them even though they have rebelled and sinned against him. And so what he is going to do is that God is going to remove paths. He's going to make paths straight. He's going to fill the valleys. He's going to lower the mountains and hills. Why? So that everyone will know they are welcomed in God's kingdom. And everybody will be humbled. And so to Luke and the New Testament authors, they are saying John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this, to to make the path straight, to let us know that God has come. Or put another way, he is the fulfillment of this message, that there is one from whom all nations can receive salvation. This is what John is coming to announce. Now, all nations means everybody, not just the Jews, not just God's chosen people, but all people, the Gentiles, no matter who you are, where you live, your ethnicity, your gender, your socioeconomic status, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, there is a chance for everybody to receive the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. Now, to be clear, what John is communicating, what the entire scriptures are communicating, that this means that there is one person, that it is Jesus, that there is no other way to receive the grace and mercy of God but Jesus, which, of course, kind of rubs against our, sense, our cultural sensibilities, and it seems very uh, exclusive, right? Like, why would God do that? Now, the reason why we kind of are uncomfortable with this idea that there is only way, one way to God is really for two reasons. One, we really don't think we're that bad, right? Like, so, like, obviously, we're not perfect. Obviously, no one has done, you know, we don't get everything right. But, uh, but because we justify everything we do, we, we think, well, maybe I just need a little bit of help. Like, God, maybe he's not totally impressed with me, but, I mean, did you see how nice I was last week? The person yelled at me. I didn't yell in the back. Like, I, I'm okay. So, so we don't think we need that much help. Uh, the other thing is it seems really mean. Like, so, so here's, I think, what often we assume. We assume that Jesus came, and he says that I'm the only way to God, and so what he did was he closed all the other paths. Like, there are multiple ways to receive the grace and forgiveness of God, and now Jesus is saying, well, I'm the only way, and if that were true, that would be very exclusive. However, uh, scripture paints the picture that there is no way to God. And so what Jesus came to do was to make a way. And in, from that uh, perspective, it is not exclusive. It's actually inclusive, right? Why would God come if there were other ways to do what we needed to do to earn his favor? Why would he come to his creation who has rebelled and rejected us, rejected him, unless he loved us and wanted to make a way for us to experience his grace, I kind of think of it like this. I've shared this story before, but I guess about seven or eight years ago now, I wanted to buy a TV and I was doing a bunch of research and I decided that I wanted to buy a plasma TV. I come and find out this was like the last year that they were making them because I get, they're heavier than LEDs and they, the price uh, profit margin is a lot smaller. So they're phasing them out and I find this Samsung that I wanted to buy. And it was a 55 inch TV and I go, I'm looking at all the prices and then I go to Costco online because we were members at the time and they weren't selling this 55 inch Samsung, but they were selling the 60 inch version for cheaper than everyone else was selling the 55 inch version. And you know that there is no such thing as a TV that's too big. Even though our apartment at this time, the living room was like six feet like like long, like it was just like, bam, it was like a movie theater, right? And so I was like, I I, want to get this thing. And so I, I, it's Saturday night and I'm at Costco.com and literally I'm in the checkout thing as I'm putting in my credit card information. I'm like, you know, we live in an apartment, it's kind of annoying to have to get it from the, you know, from the office. Why don't I go to Costco tomorrow, see if they have it in stock, and do it that way? So I wake up, we, we do the church thing, I come home and I watch the Panthers on my little 37-inch TV, they probably were gonna lose, they probably lost, because that's what they always do. And then I drive to Costco and I say, hey, I wanna get this TV, and the lady was like, oh, we don't sell it in the store, and you know, the store and the online system are different, so you're just gonna have to order online, like I can't do it for you, no big deal. Go home, go to Costco.com, click on the TV, and it says, sold out. It was there last night. Good thing, you know, the Lord is faithful. I had a tab still open from last night, because I used to have like 30 tabs open at a time. I've gotten better at this, right? And so it was there, and I was like, sold out. I got it right here. So I I put my credit card information again. I hit enter, it reloads, and it says, sold out. I'm like, you're kidding me. I was so disappointed. I was getting the bigger TV for less. And so I had my mind, this is what I was going to spend. So for the next couple of days, I went, all... no, and a lot of places didn't have the TV anymore. And so I was like, oh, H.H. Gregg, it used to be in Briar Creek. It's one of those appliance stores. I was like, let me just go in there as a last ditch effort. And I, I walk in the store and they have it, the 16th version and they price match, right? So I'm like, Hey, I'm asking the guy, you guys price match. He's like, yeah, but you can like prove it. And so I go to Costco.com. As long as you didn't click on the TV, it was still there. And so if you click on it, it says, you know, unavailable, but I didn't do that. It just said, it said see, here's right here. And I got the last one that they sold, right? Won't he do it, right? So I got this TV. Still to this day, we still have this TV. It's really heavy, and I'm surprised it hasn't fallen out of our wall, but it's still there. And I share that because here's the thing, right? In this example, HH Greg wasn't exclusive. It was the only chance I had to get this TV, and uh, it's the only nice thing you'll ever say about that story, right? Uh, it's the reason why they went out of business. Anyway, and so what's happening here is that Jesus is providing a way where there is no way. What's really interesting, you know, as we read these scriptures, what we often want to do is uh, get in the mindset of the original audience. What did they think about it? They also had a problem with this passage, but it was different than ours. Their problem was not that there was one way. Their problem was that it was open to everyone. Right? God's chosen people, why would he allow the pagans, the idolaters, the adulterers? Why would he allow them? And this, this is not just a Jewish concept, even though it was very polytheistic, and no matter where you went in the ancient world, like everybody had their gods, and they were your gods. They liked you, obviously, than other people. Like nobody had this idea that their God could actually save the entire world. Our problem is it seems too exclusive, although if you look at it, it's actually quite inclusive. Their problem was it seems too inclusive. They thought it should be more exclusive. What John's message was that there is salvation for anyone, no matter who you are or what you have done. So then it says this, if we keep reading in verse 7. He, again talking about John the Baptist, then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, a brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So so what's happening here? Uh, What's happening here is John is challenging those coming to him, likely in this instance some of the religious leaders, but of course everyone else would have heard this. He's challenging them and he's calling them a brood of vipers. Now what does that mean? Uh, A brood of vipers was a derogatory cultural expression for everybody, but even more so for the Jewish people. It meant that you were evil and devious. So he's calling God's chosen people, at least some of them, evil and devious, Now, it's even a stronger negative connotation in a Jewish context, because if you're familiar with the creation story that teaches us that God created everything, you had the snake, that caused the fall, right, that introduced sin into the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, what does God say? He is going to send a deliverer to step on the heel of the the head of the snake, that the snake will uh, will bite his heel. The point is that God is going to redeem the world, even though we have gone our own way. And so the snake was always synonymous with evil and and bad things and bad people. And so John is saying, some of you religious leaders, you think you're awesome. You're actually like the snake. Now, why? Why, why is he saying that? Well, he talks about Abraham here. What he's saying is don't assume that because you are from the family of Abraham that you don't need to repent. What he's saying there is just because you are an Israelite, that does not mean that you also don't need to repent and trust in God and who, and who he is. You see, what was happening is many people were relying on their heritage and their ethnicity as God's chosen people to say, I'm good. Like, i yeah, I know I'm supposed to honor God and like go through the motions and do the sacrifices. But at the end of the day, I'm fine simply because I am a Jew. And this still happens today, right? Although it's a different cultural setting, we're a different moment in time, we can still do the same thing. So particularly if you grew up in the South, like there is this, and it's different from different places in the world, different cultures and contexts. But we all do this, right? You hear this a lot. I hear this a lot. And the Southern cultural Christianity, where we have all these reasons why we're good, Like, for example, people will say things like, well, I grew up going to church, right? So as long as I be a somewhat decent human being, the fact that I grew up going to church means I'm good. Or we might say, well, I've read the Bible, so therefore I'm good. Or (laughs) my personal favorite, because everybody seems to have somebody in their family who is a pastor or a minister, right? Well, my brother's cousin's aunt, sister's husband, he was a pastor, so I'm good, right? We have all of these reasons why we're good, except we don't do what John is telling us that Jesus is calling us to do, which is repent and trust in the one that God sent. Or put another way, the mark of a true believer, what John is getting at, is repentance and faith. This is what John is going to talk about more throughout the Gospels. Of course, this is Jesus' message, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? We have all of these reasons why we're good, but, but don't do the thing that God is actually inviting us to do. I kind of think of it like this, too. Even if you're not a sports fan, you you know sports fans, and so you can probably relate to this. Uh, If your team is good, above average, average, or maybe just slightly below average, and you lose a close game, or a game that you thought you should win, your team should win, there's all these excuses, right? Well, the refs. Or we had one unlucky play, or they had just one good play. Like there's all these reasons why your team lost, except that the other team was better than us and deserved to win, right? We don't say that, right? We say, here's the reason why we lost. It's not because we actually got outplayed and they deserve. they they never deserved to win, right? There's always an excuse or a reason. And what John is telling the people here is that God's family is not going to be made up by natural descent, but by a personal response to Him. Not all these, all these other reasons why you and I think we are good. It is a personal response to him. And so, as John says, as with axes and trees, judgment is close at hand because God is here. So what are you going to do? Are you going to rely on yourself and all the reasons why you think you're good? Or are you going to trust the one who's actually doing for you what you cannot do for yourself? That is what he is warning them here. And so in response to that, if we keep reading in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, it then says this, what then should we do? The crowds were asking him, right? If, if, if we can't uh, rely on all of these external factors to make us good before God, what should we do? This is kind of unnerving. Like, well, tell us what to do here because I don't want to be chopped down like a tree. That doesn't sound fun. He replies this in verse 11. He replied, John the Baptist replied, Uh, to them. The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, right? The bad people, quote unquote. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized, right? Because they basically got rich by scamming people out of more money saying, don't do that. Or he says in verse 14, some soldiers also questioned him. Some Roman soldiers, most likely. Uh, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take any money from anyone by force or false accusation. And be satisfied with all your wages. So what happened if you were a Roman soldier? Again, you're occupying uh, other lands. If you're not a Roman citizen, which there were not a lot, a ton of Roman citizens in the land of Israel, and you're a Roman soldier, you could go into somebody's house and take whatever you wanted, and there's nothing they could do about it. There's no legal system. It's like, who are you to tell me my word, the Roman government's word against you? They could pretty much do whatever they wanted to people. And John is saying, don't do that. Do your job. Be satisfied with what you have. Uh, Then uh, verse 15, it says this. Now, the people uh, were waiting, or sorry, so basically he's telling all these people this, um, live upright, live in an upright and honorable way, right? He's giving all these people examples, how should we live? Well, you should, essentially what he's saying here is honor God and how you live. Now, salvation, as we see, which is why it's important not just to read some verses, um, is clearly accomplished by Jesus and his grace for us. But, however, the New Testament paints a very clear picture that Jesus and trusting in Jesus is not a mere intellectual thought, right? It's not a, I have thought the right thing, so I am good. It is something that you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, are supposed to live out, right? How we live reveals do we actually trust Jesus or not? Right, how we live, in other words, it's not like this. It's not, well, I prayed a prayer. It's not, well, somebody I know is a minister. It's not, well, I grew up in church. It's not, well, I read the Bible. It's not, well, I gave money. It's not where it's not, well, you know, I prayed a lot. It's, it's none of these things. What the New Testament shows us is the belief is actually exemplified or demonstrated in how we live. Let me just give you one example, right? In James chapter 2, this might be a, a, well-known, one, a well-known example. James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it this way in verse 14. And it'll be on the screen. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well-fed, but don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? What good is it to have the ability to meet someone's need and not do it? Verse 17, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, right? You intellectually believe the right things. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Now, there's a lot more that could be said. We won't get into it this morning, but I, I do want to say this. What, what James is saying here, what the New Testament is, is saying here, is don't just think about your, your faith. If you have faith, it will impact how you live. And so all these extra things are good, but they are not what save us. They demonstrate that we've actually trusted in Jesus. Or put another way, how you respond to Jesus is as important as what you think about Jesus. And if you grew up in church, depending on your Christian tradition, we talk a lot about God's grace, which is absolutely true. But I would submit to you, the New Testament has a a really big tension that we have got to walk in and live with between faith is by Jesus and it matters how you live. All the time. It impacts how you live. Now, we say this often. There's not a litmus test or a bar. So, uh, what it looks like for you to follow Jesus is going to look different. It's not like if you've been following Jesus for a year, it looks like this, and five and 10, right? We all have different upbringings. We all have different experiences. We all have had different things happen to us. All that's basically saying is that it does impact how you live, right? Intellectually, thinking the right things means you believe it, it has an impact on you, on how you live. Otherwise, you don't actually believe what you're actually. Think, right? You can't just think it. It has to impact you. If you've actually experienced the grace and mercy of God, it impacts how we live. Let me give you an example like this. Uh, uh, Every once in a while, very rarely, like once every couple years, maybe uh, Christina uh, will do something that that uh, is supposed to evoke a response from me. That always, I don't know why, it's just a little bit delayed. So let me give you an example. Let's say we're going to a wedding, okay? And she has bought a new dress. It's very obvious it's a new dress. She's never worn it before. Like, it's, and so she comes out of the bedroom, and, and she waits a while, and maybe 30 seconds or a minute goes by, and then she says, oh, hey, babe, that dress looks beautiful on you. I'm so glad I get to go to the wedding as your date. And I'm always like, I was going to say that. Like, you said the exact thing I was just going to say. I just needed more time to articulate it. Like, you, how do you always know what I'm going to say? right? Now, in those situations, it doesn't matter if I think it. I have to say it before she does, right? I, I, I can't use the excuse, that's exactly what I was going to, which of course it is. It's just sometimes my, my feelings, it's a little bit vulnerable for me to say these things. And so I, I need more time. She doesn't give me enough time. That's, that's what it is. She doesn't give me enough time, right? But i like, it doesn't matter, right? If I don't say it, it doesn't matter if I think it. If I think it, I should actually do something with it. And the invitation is that if you actually experience the grace and mercy of God, it should impact you. In a significant way, how you respond to Jesus is just as important as thinking the right things. Because if we actually think the right things, it will impact how we live. And this is what John is saying. And so let's read the last couple of verses from this passage, verse fifteen, and then says this. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. Right? So just like Jordan Penley clearly looks like Anne Frank, right? Uh, They're like, are you the one? Like you're saying all these things. Maybe you are the one that we have been waiting for. But John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. What John is saying is He is not the anointed one. He is not the Messiah. He is not the long awaited savior, but he is pointing to the one who is. And in fact, when he says he is unworthy to untie his sandals, he's talking about washing his feet, right? In the ancient cultures, it was the slaves or the servants or the low class people that washed people's feet. John is saying, as great as you might think I am, I am so unworthy of the one who's actually to come. He is so much more greater than me. In comparison to Jesus, John says, I'm not even worthy of washing his feet. What he's saying is the Messiah is coming and he is here and he will give you the spirit of God himself to those who trust in him. And his winnowing shovel, it's basically like a, it's like a wooden pitchfork, and basically when you would gather the grain, you would essentially throw it up into the air after you, grab it, uh, after you gather, gathered it, and as it would come back down, if it was windy, the chaff, the unusable spot, uh, parts would blow away, and you would be left with the grain that you could actually use. Just like that, God is coming to invite people in, that the true Messiah is coming to gather people into his kingdom, to anyone who would accept and trust in him. Now, Luke says more about John the Baptist, but here's what I want to do. I want to end with a story from John chapter 3. So in John chapter uh, 3, John has already at this point baptized Jesus to begin his earthly ministry. And uh, people are confused about what's going on. I want to read this. It'll be on the screen. It says this, John chapter 3, starting in verse 25. Then a dispute arose about John's disciples. So John the Baptist, you know, has gathered a following. He's leading people. Some of his followers are in an argument. And a Jew, so uh, his followers and someone else, about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, who is with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. So this one you talked about, this one you baptized, that's great. But, like, your followers, the people are they're now like trying to follow him. Is, this is a problem. Like, what are we going to do, right? He says this in verse 27. John responded No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, who John is saying is him, stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I just want to point out the humility in this statement. Like, even if you're following Jesus, here's what we know, right? Um, It is really hard when you have influence and authority and people are following you and they're listening to you. Even if you know the right thing is to point to Jesus, it's really hard to actually do that and do that with a good attitude? Like, can you imagine someone who's like following Jesus and does something and like, uh, like a well-known person and like they're, they say something and they're talking about Jesus and, so, and they're like, their social media manager comes up to them and says, hey, bad news, you lost 100,000 followers on Instagram today, right? The person's like, sweet, I don't need those followers. Like, who cares, right? Like, you would, like, like, that would make you feel some sort of way, right? Like, nobody likes when their influence or their authority or their likability is going down. Yet what John is saying is that this is the point <laughs> that John was faithful. In fact, uh, Jesus says John is the greatest among all men. So I'm not saying you're not awesome, but you're not John, right? And you're also not Roman. Okay, so if you're like, <laughs> if you if you're new, it's a it's a thing. Just stick around. You'll you'll hear it later. Um, but but all I'm saying is, that John said this was my role to help prepare and to point people to Jesus. And now that Jesus' ministry has begun, this is my joy, to become a nobody so that people can experience grace and mercy, right? Now that the true light, Jesus, has come, the lamp, John, has done his work, right? This is John the Baptist. And this is why the book of John that we're reading right now, written by the disciple of Jesus, begins this way. The last thing I'll read, John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the word. Now, later on in John chapter 1, this is identified as Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so as we celebrate a very wonderful time of the year of joy, of love, of grace, we need to remember that this is the point of why Jesus came. That Jesus brings us from darkness to light. That is why he came. And as we say often, like, the story of God coming is a good story because of why he came. Otherwise, it's just a cool story, right? Why he came was to fulfill his mission, to make it possible that anyone and everyone across generational lines, ethnic lines, socioeconomic statuses, the things that you have done, the things that have been done to you, that he has come to rescue us from darkness, to bring us into the light. Right, the good news of the gospel is that God has come in the form of a man named Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to invite us into his kingdom, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we're awesome, but in spite of all of that, he came not because he had to, but simply because he wanted to. And in joy and in delight, he gave himself so that you and I can experience life in him. And so the good news of the Christmas season is good news because of what it means, that in the midst of your pain and your hardship and your suffering, God has not abandoned you, he has not left you, and it's not because he doesn't care, because if God didn't care, he wouldn't have come. This doesn't mean we don't have questions, this doesn't mean we don't have doubts, this doesn't mean we don't why some things, but he has explicitly told us, not just this idea that he loves us, but he has shown us that he loves us by coming and giving us light in the midst of the darkness that anyone, that his message, what John the Baptist was talking about, that anyone would repent and trust, not start to be a better person right now, uh, not to do a lot of good things for a while and then go to God so that he's not as mad at you that anybody, the inclusivity of God, that all you have to do is simply repent, which just means be honest, that you don't have it all together. I mean, that's all that means. And trust that he has done for us, that he has gladly done for us, which you could not do for yourselves. And he is welcoming you to come, to be a part of his family. And so to close, I want to invite the band uh, on the stage, and we're going to close in a time of confession. We do this every week here at New City Church. We take a second to privately and collectively together uh, go before the Lord and be honest about the places and the areas that we have fallen short, uh, where we have sinned, where we have dishonored God. And we do this every week, not out of obligation, but out of an invitation to know and to remember that God invites us to experience him that he allows us to experience his grace, and he wants to give us his grace. And so this morning, uh, before we close and worship of our king who has come to bring us in, uh, let's take a second and do what he invites us to do. Be honest about our brokenness, uh, be honest about our shame, to ask for his forgiveness, and to ask for him to give us the courage to love those around us well. Uh, this holiday season is different for different people. You might be excited about Christmas coming up. It might be difficult based on who you're going to be around. Uh, Maybe you need to ask God for courage this week, just to love him well and for patience. And if you're here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, you just need to know that Christmas is a reminder that he is inviting us to come right where we are. So would you take a second, silently go before the Lord, ask for his forgiveness, and then we'll worship the God who gladly always responds to repentance with grace. So would you pray to him?